welcome everybody to this event organized by the Culture and Knowledge Program at LSE Global Governance. I'm Sabine Secher and I'm part of this program. Um, and it's run by Professor Henrietta Moore. And this is basically almost like a launch event of our program. We look at culture and its, and its relationship to global politics. So we try to bring a little bit of a new um, perspective into the, into the study of global, global politics beyond the traditional approaches. And we are very pleased to have um, two fantastic speakers and one fantastic chair talking to us today. So um, 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 on the left from your side, this is Brian Talbot, and I'm very sure well, many of you know him anyway already. And Brian is, um, is a, um, an, a graphic novelist, and he has published a lot of books, and for instance, The Tale of One Bad Rat and Alice in Sunderland, and his newest book is actually this one here, Grandville Mon Amour, and I think the talk will um, relate to this book, and you can have a look at it later outside, and you can have it signed by him. And then in the middle we have Steve, Th and, and um, of course Brian's books are quite worldwide, quite a acclaimed and, and um, um, well regarded. And then in the middle we have Steve Bell, and he's known to most of us from his writing and his cartoons in The Guardian. He has been written and, and drawn for The Guardian since the beginning of the 80s, and he has won lots of prizes and lots of different exhibitions. Um, and then we have uh, our chair, Dr. Kathleen Fieski, and Kathleen is the director of CounterPoint. Um, it's a think tank of the British Council, but you know, it becomes uh, independent at the moment. And um, CounterPoint looks very much at the relationship between culture and public policy, and especially on cultural risks. So thank you very much all for coming. I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Zabina, and welcome, everyone. Uh, it's really good to see all of you here. Um, this is a this is a great uh, great event. It's a really good way to launch, I think, this uh, this program. LSE is a perfectly appropriate place uh, to to really think about the relationship between uh, culture, politics, and society, and to do it through a uh, a medium that I think is uh, is becoming more and more important um, as a, sort of a globalized media it gives more and more people access um, to the kinds of works that uh, both Steve and, and Brian do. So it's a real pleasure um, to, to be here today. Um, the way we're going to do this is that we're going to keep it slightly informal. We, uh, I will ask some rather broad questions in order to give uh, both my guests as much space as they, uh, as they would like to explore a certain number of, of questions. And then once we've done that and we've had a, a, a kind of three-way conversation, we will, of course, uh, open it up. Uh, open it up to you, um, our audience. So I'm going to, to start off, and I'm going to privilege the matter of politics, given that we are, we are essentially here at LSE, London School of Economics and Political Science. I always like to make sure that we add as a political scientist myself. Um, and so I think that I'm going to, I'm going to start really with, with this, this theme. And, and ask and start with, uh, with Steve and then join you to, uh, to comment as well, Brian, if you would. Um, if you're going to comment on politics, why do it with a comic strip? Well, um... <laughs> oh, you're clearly <laughs> very good at it, but why? <laughs> why, why? Um, well, it's, comics are very peculiarly suited, especially to modern politics, because modern politics is something about image, um, the world of image control and... Uh, image, um, well, I mean, there's a whole industry built in, every politician has a, an image maker, a, a press person who d 
deals with everything about that. Uh, co comics, cartoons especially, are, are very well placed to pick, a, pick apart this carapace of imagery that politics presents to us. Um, and the, the, the peculiar thing about comic strip, which both Brian and I do, and I'm probably doing more overtly about politics than Brian is, but it, is you can go further with a strip than just a single image. You can, uh, because you have a narrative you can develop, and you can develop sort of insane, um, I say insane, or, or preposterous, or um, deeply offensive um, stories about people, and turn them into animals, or turn them into creatures, turn them into monsters of your own devising. On the screen there's a Thatcher there, but who did, this is an early Thatcher, which took some time to develop into a character. I think she, she, she developed her own character slowly as well. <laughs> she didn't come fully formed as we now know her. And my character took some time in the sense that there's a kind of, there's a sort of psychosis in Thatcher which comes out and it's as expressed through her left eyeball for me. And uh, that's what I went on, that's what I built my character. It took some years to, to get to that, probably about three or four years before I'd, I'd been drawing it, before I realised this was the essence of it. Um, and it, you can only do that in a comic strip. There's no other medium for doing it. You can't do it in photography because I, kn I knew the mad I was there, but um, I saw no photographic evidence until it would come up very shortly. The day of her dis political demise, when she was actually booted out, there in the pages of the, it was either the FT or the Telegraph, was a, a picture that demonstrated what I'd known was there all along. It's <laughs> the mad eye. Now the point about drawing is you can you draw what you know to be there. It, it gives you a very rare advantage. Um, we are constrained by the need to be truthful. It's just coming up now. This is a, we <laughs> you see in the background her demise is this is a final this is the first big one I did for the guy which coincided with her actually <coughs> getting shafted by Jeffrey Howe and then resigning. And just coming up now you will see in about three, so there we are, that's it. <laughs> the only photographic proof I've ever seen of the mad left eye. Uh, and it's there, and I knew it was there all along, so I felt a great sense of vindication when I saw that photo. Um, but I do a lot of sketching when I go to party conferences, because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by politics, politicians, what they do, what they get up to. This is an early one of John Major. I didn't, I mean, he was quite senior, but he has a fascinating kind of ingrowing moustache that was this is before he was Prime Minister, he was still, I think, Foreign Secretary or Chancellor. But it was fortunate I did, because I was able to then build a character. He, he turned into this, very quickly, turned into this crap Superman, who leapt out of a phone box like Clark Kent, with un underpants outside his trousers. Uh, it was nothing to do with any room about where he tucks his shirt, it was to do with being a crap Superman, which is a comic device, which we all use in the world of comics. Superman wearing sleek red briefs all over, sleek red sorry, tights, and then red briefs, blue tights and then red briefs over the top. Major, grey suit, air takes wire front, so there you have it. So, sort of cartoon. so that's, that's in a sense why I think cartoons are well, are well placed to do that. Um, you can't do it, there's no other medium that can possibly do it. You couldn't do it in a, on TV, in a film. Comics is so, in, you've got such a direct way through to a, an audience. Just do it, the paper, it goes out, it's published the next day. It is the most wonderfully direct medium. Um, before I, I, um, I move over to you, uh, Brian, I just, can you comment on um, 
Tony Blair's eyeball. Yeah, um, just coming up now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, I, that's so I, 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 the reason I ask you is, is also because, I mean, are you, are you, in a sense, also trying to say that this is not just about politics, but that actually politicians are a particular breed of people? No, no, I'm not okay. saying that at all. I, I don't think politicians are a different or a separate breed. But politicians do have particular fascinating characteristics, mm -hmm. and they are uh, politicians, you know, somebody as boring as Major, apparently, on the surface. <laughs> has this sort of strange under underlife, underworld, uh, underpants. Um, whereas Blair, um, I, this is an early one of Blair, or you see when you first look at Blair, it's just too many teeth, that's the first thing that strikes you. But this is a sketch I did, it, it just happened to be, I was looking at him actually on the television screen, but there's a mad left eyeball, there it is. I, I sort of made this note. Then I put it in, the, where have I seen that before? Of course it was Margaret Thatcher, I had him morphing into Thatcher. <laughs> Trying to find photographic evidence. It's more difficult in this case, because it's not so evident. But as you find as he gets on, it's, uh, it's, one, it's an early one. There's one just as it's a couple of months ago. There it is, mad. And the, the guy is crazy, he's getting worse. He's becoming more like his caricature. And if you're, I suppose if there's any truth in your caricature, that will happen, because you're, you're getting an element of that person. And there was a kind of, easy kind of manga about that. And uh, so that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to go for the truth. That's it's lust for truth. Anyway, that's. Uh, <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. I wonder whether um, we could uh, get to, yeah, to to Brian's uh, presentation while while I grill him on politics. I mean, you're more reluctant to be brought out as somebody who who comments very directly on politics. I I found uh, one person who who. Um, uh, on, on one of the, your, your many fan sites, you sort of said, well, you know, actually, he is a political commentator, he is a social commentator, he just happens to work through the medium uh, of, of, of comics. But um, is that how you would see yourself, that you happen to work through the No, I, I don't really see myself as a social commentator, but more as just a storyteller, and that's my inheritance, tell, tell a good story. But at the same time, I've, I've worked in science fiction quite a lot, a lot of doing non-genre work. But I don't want my books to be pure fantasy, mm -hmm. you know, pure escapism. Mm -hmm. I do want them to refer to the real world quite a bit. And when you ask me about it, just looking back, thinking back, I have actually done that um, all the way through from my first graphic novel, uh, The Adventures of Luther Artwright, which was like a parallel world science fiction story. It was produced in the state of Syria from 1978, first collected in 81. And it was produced against the background of the rise of the, of the far right in Britain, the Thatcher coming to power, and the National Front marching on the street, and you look at it, it's an it's a anti-fascist piece, basically. In the story, the, there's still a, a civil war going on, and a descendant of Oliver Cromwell in power, it's sort of lots of parallels with Nazi Germany, and there's like Nuremberg-style rallies outside of Westminster, um, so it's like a Puritan fascist dictatorship. And uh, I did a sequel called Heart of Empire, and that was sort of anti-imperialist, basically. It was at the same time the troops were going into uh, Afghanistan for the first time. Um, and it was actually, you, you do see, it's called Heart of Empire, you do see the Heart of Empire. It's embodied in this, in this creature that's like sucking the empire dry of all resources. Um, and even in the Granville uh, books, uh, the first one is set in a, a world where it's, uh, it's dominated by France. And uh, it's really about the way the American and British governments lied to us about weapons of mass destruction and, 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 and this sort of war on terror, terror thing. Uh, and the, the French government, the, the Prime Minister, is, uh, you know, it's anthropomorphic books, Granville books, animals in them. 
and uh, the, the right wing Prime Minister of France in the book is a white rabbit, Jean-Marie Lapin. <laughs> so there are uh, parallels. The, the new one, really, I mean, it could be applied to, to you know, terrorism and the, you know, the, the consequences of terrorism, the way terrorism dehumanises people. Funny talking about dehumanising with animals, but um, there are, there's also racism themes in Granville, which can be brought out in the next few books, uh, because there's not just animals in the story, there's also humans in the story. And the humans are an underclass. They're sort of second-class citizens, and the French refer to them as door faces, and uh, they're just menial workers. And, and in the next book, you'll see them marching for equal rights and things like that. So, although they are basically fantasies, I do like to, you know, ground them, make them refer to the real world, and it adds another level of depth to the story. I wonder whether um, I could I could just push you a little bit further on that, which is that what what kind of story can you tell through this particular uh, medium, through the graphic novel? Uh, what kind of power do you think it, it, it grants you? I mean, in the nicest possible way, but uh, what kind of power, what kind of control uh, does it give you over a number of means that you might not get through straight drawing or straight storytelling? Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, I, it's a medium, I think, that can be applied to anything. Any subject can be dealt with, even non-fiction subjects can be dealt with, which I've done in Alice in Sunderland. Uh, you know, Art Speedleman famously in Mouse, which another anthropomorphic comic that was dealing with the experience of his father during Auschwitz during the Second World War. He won a Pulitzer Prize. I think you can use comics to deal with everything. But I think the big difference between you know, comics and, and, and texts, uh, novels or, or, or films, is that when you write and draw and do everything yourself, electric, I like to colour it myself, it's not one of the American superhero production line type comics, is uh, basically <coughs> in charge of the whole train set. You know, you're not just creating the story, which is enjoyable bit. I mean, they're doing the writing. You're also designing the costumes, you're designing the sets, you're, you're the lighting technician, you're the director, you're the key grip, you know, you know, all these sort of things. But the, I think there's a lot of similarities made with comics and movies, you know, because we use similar things like long shots and close-ups and panning shots and things like that. But actually, I think it's closer to prose fiction mm -hmm. because you're telling your story, it's filtered through the imagination of the artist. I think the key, I think what you mean, by the, what you're getting at, I think the key to comics is to be able to enjoy comics, to the ability to appreciate comics, you must have a love of illustration. You must like looking at drawings. And I like, I've, I've got loads of books and different illustrators. But when you think about comics, you get those illustrations there, but they're also telling a story. You know, so it's even better. One of the things that slightly at a tangent, but, um this is something that um, is perhaps uh, more recognised in certain uh, in certain societies than in others. So there is a you know there is a reverence, for example, for the BD and the comic strip in, in France, and you know and, and slightly less so uh, here. We don't have the Angoulême festival, um, which you refer to uh, in in some of, in some of your books. Why do you think that is? Uh, we have two different traditions, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean. The comics, the first comics in Britain were for adult readership, the Victorian comics, the so-called comic supplements to newspapers, meaning humorous, where we get the name that the medium's called today, so it's called comics, you know a lot of comics aren't funny, uh, they're tragic, whatever, there's a lot of autobiographical comics and things like that. But very quickly, um, this, so this uh, journalist, freelance journalist uh, called Alfred Harmsworth, 
he saw that children were enjoying reading, looking for pictures of these adult comics. He thought, well, let's do a comic for children. And he, he published two uh, comic cuts and chips. And the, it's the success of these comics is, it was a phenomenon, unbelievable. Within a few years, he was publishing dozens of comics. Uh, imitators were publishing comics for children. And I mean, he made so much money publishing these, these comics. He bought, he founded two national newspapers, the Daily Mail and the Daily Mirror. And within a couple of years, he acquired the Times, the Observer, and within a few short years, he was the biggest publishing, the biggest publishing empire in the world. And these children's comics, that became what comics were in Britain. Um, was that the foundation of his sort of empire? Oh, yeah, yeah, two comics. I mean, he was, he was point, come from point, you know, he later became Lord Northcliffe, you know, but uh, the whole British comic tradition is that people think of comics as being for children. Uh, whereas in France, you know, comics started in newspapers and for children, actually, uh, a lot of them. And then I think one of the biggest things in this is on the French thing is Tantan, you know, the yes. Tantan books by Hergé, which have been coming out since 1936, and people have grown up with them. So by the time the 60s arrive, you get adults who are used to reading these Tintin books who want these nice albums, not like flimsy pamphlet comics, uh, who want to read um, comics but for grown-ups. So then you start seeing the, the first adult comics in France like Barbarella and um, things like that. And it, by the early 70s, it was quite established. And now you, I mean, you go to Paris and al uh, bookstores selling albums and uh, it's... Can you hear me at the back? Sorry. Uh, um, it, it's an established part of French life. You know, I often go to the Angoulême Festival, which gets a quarter of a million people there every year, the comic festival. Um, and I usually stop in Paris on the way back to Potter and for a bit. And I was in a bar one night coming back from uh, Angoulême. I'm talking to this the, the, the waiter, and he noticed me reading a comic album. And he, I, I said, oh yeah, I've just come back from Angoulême. He said, oh yes, I, I'm not a comic fan, really. I'm not... Uh, I'm not into comics. He said, I like, uh, I mean, look, it looks great. He said, I've got all the Blueberry books. And he then proceeded to tell me all these albums he got, and he got <laughs> dozens of them. <laughs> but he didn't consider himself a comic fan, you know, a, co a comic fanatic, if you like. Uh, and he's just an ordinary guy, you know, he wanted to read comics in France. I'm, I'm wondering if I could, um, I'm going to bring you back to some of what you've, uh, you've brought up, and, you know, away from the, the social commentary per se, going back to the role of, of humor, which mm -hmm. you both use in, in actually very, very different uh, ways. So um, I'm going to go back to you, Steve, and ask you essentially about the, the kind of humor that you use, which is really, which is caricature and absurdity. Um, and, you know, and in a sense, you're, you know, you're opting for that. Obviously, there's the, the work of the image, uh, but also, um, also, you know why and and how how has this changed over the years for you? Has it? Um, have you have you fine tuned it? Um, have you felt you've been using different means in terms of the humour in your in your strip? Well, I I suppose it develops over the years inevitably because of doing the same thing. It does tend to <laughs> you move on. In essence, it's still the same as it ever was though because it's it comes out of. Brian's been describing about this, the, the children's comics. Um, I sort of, I'm very much out of that children's comic tradition because I was sort of massively influenced by the Beano. So personally, I've never been able to get on with, as a rule, comic books that go on and on. I like 
one page, two pages at the outside, then I, I sort of lose interest. Now I don't know if this is just me, but there's something about when you work within a, or a newspaper, you're just a, you're just a sort of explosion within a, a sea of text mainly, and a few pictures as well. Um, so it gives you more of an advantage, so you can shock a bit more. Um, I, the, I'm not very good at doing extended narratives, that's probably why I don't do it. Um, so I'm, I suppose, um, and the, the sort of humour I use, I realise more the more and more I go on, it's, it's embedded in a very, very long tradition, which is being personally abusive about politicians, now, which is a very peculiar to this country. It is a very unique to England, especially. And it goes back like 300 years. And it does take this long to build that kind of, or to give politicians the kind of thick skin that they, they're used to it. You do the sort of thing I do in a lot of other countries, and the politicians will actually complain. It sounds, sounds insane, but if you, you, you're personally insulting, especially, say, um, obviously, well, say obviously, but uh, there are obviously some countries that are more oppressive than others, but. There's a, uh, comics are very important in the Arab world, but the openings are very brief, but the cartoonists do fulfill a very important role um, because it's a kind of, again, it's a kind of a space where people can breathe and their ideas can outrage and be funny and, and give people a kind of release. Um, so I suppose I'm, I'm always in the context of, uh, of something else, which is newspapers. That's, that's where I'm working. It's always about politics. It tends to be heavily ironic, and it tends to use a kind of savage, abusive humour, which goes back to Hogarth, it goes especially back to Gilray. Now, Gilray was the sort of, working in the late 18th century, was you doing things that I wouldn't dare get away with, and he was doing it in a context where there's no free press. Um, but he got away with it. The reason he got away with it was because he was working in a context where you have different centres of power, and I think this is probably why it is particularly unique to this country is because in the late 17th century, which is when the party system began to get going, the Whigs and the Tories evolved out of something before, but because you have competing powers, it's nothing to do with democracy, it's just you have something that will appeal to a certain power centre and obviously won't appeal to another, but because there are two competing power centres, then, then it, the little flame of outrage or ridicule can survive. So that's, that's why it's, it, it is, and it does go back to Hogarth and it does go back to Gilroy. Um, and it, it takes a lot, I'm not saying that cartoons in France aren't any more or less rude. I think probably in, in terms of doing it in a daily paper, I know I've spoken to, for instance, um, Plantu, and he says, well, I couldn't, I couldn't do that, being a specifically rude personal cartoon about somebody, whereas I can. Whereas there's certain things I can't do that I know they can do on the country, which is it's about sort of if you like, kind of bodily prudishness, which afflicts, I think, the Anglo-centric world. Uh, we're particularly prudish about sex, and it applies to the Guardian, it applies across the board, it, particularly in America. If you have, for instance, a full frontal view of a penis, um, <laughs> do it in Denmark, no, you'll bat an eyelid. Do it here, the editor will go mad. There's it, 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 sort of cultural differences about what's acceptable in certain countries. But in terms of being abusive about politicians, then it goes back a long way, and it's well established, so I'm not really Groundbreaking in that sense. Yeah, there is. Uh, there's a, a, a fantastic example of this in um, uh, the political broadsheets that used to be handed out. And some of those were in comic strip form. And there's one that was done in uh, 1782 by Thomas Rowlandson, the famous watercolorist and uh, illustrator, cartoonist. And uh, it's called The Loves and the Fox and the Badger, anthropomorphic comic, mm -hmm. 1782. 
and it's it's criticising, having stopped you've heard this before, it's actually criticising the unholy alliance between Lord North and James Fox over the Tory and Liberal coalition government that they've got. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll call the Whigs then, of course, but uh, it goes through a these adult comics, you know, comics which go way back. You were saying you're, you're very much by the kids' comics, the Beano, yeah. things like that. You're also much by the underground stuff. We, oh, we course, both yeah, started yeah. in underground comics, yeah, so the yeah. comics of the counterculture of the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. We, went we both, the first time I saw you working with the street K. comics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Convention of Alternative Comics yeah. with a K. CAC. Which is back in the mid 70s. Kind of, kind of. <laughs> Well, that, that, that's a, a good segue onto on you, which is that you know, yes, um, your you know your emergence through uh, counterculture, and in a sense, your use of humour is um, rather than outright um, satire or, or caricature, is is a slightly more subversive um, sort of not more subversive, but more obviously subversive in a sense. Um, how would you characterise your, your your use of because it's there. I've no idea. Uh, <laughs> really. Um, well, there's I, mean, I can't be dependent on the sort of book, you know, I can be uh, mm. quite ribald, you know. I mean, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I love Hogarth, we mentioned before, you yeah. saw no distinction between, you know, high art and low art. Uh, I don't mind being bawdy uh, at, uh, at times. Okay, so in terms of the, the humour, I guess one of the, one of the questions that um, the past few years have led us to ask is whether whether there is such a thing as going too far, right? Whether whether it does backfire. Um, first of all, were you ever sorry? <laughs> <laughs> were you ever sorry about um, about a particular strip? You, you well, it, probably, but uh, not not <laughs> seriously. I mean, not 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 to the, to the extent that I. The only time I think perhaps certain areas or issues, I think perhaps I could have gone further on that. Not usually that I went too far. Um, I'm thinking of um, well, it's not. Really, I'm thinking looking back to the situation in Yugoslavia in the early 90s, which I think I probably didn't. Looking back, didn't get angry enough because it was there was some hideous stuff going on, and I wasn't perhaps as um, as overtly condemnatory. But then I was being sort of consciously um, counter the mainstream because everybody was doing cartoons about evil serfs, and I wasn't going to go down that route because I thought that was a stupid way to look at the whole situation. It wasn't about evil serbs. And politics and political commentary can get especially stupid. And when, like me, you're coming from the sort of left, and I was coming from the left of the Labour Party before Thatcher came in, so I was laying into Callaghan for being a pathetic right-wing fool. Then along comes Thatcher, and of course, <laughs> my world doesn't fall in, but it's just very frustrating <laughs> that this maniac gets to power on a popular vote. And I couldn't, I, there's a sense of disbelief that such things should be not only current but become absolutely dominant and through the 80s Thatcher was utterly dominant Thatcher ideology was dominant was dominant in the media, it was dominant in all the papers dominant on the BBC um, so I've always got this sense of I'm sort of fighting against a kind of mainstream I'm sort of trying to push my little leftist if you like point of view I don't know what kind of leftist, well I'm only sort of la Labour Party, left of the Labour Party really that's where I define myself if anything Oh, I left the Labour Party many years ago when Blair took over and I could see which way it was going. So I gave up on it at that point. I, I probably might consider rejoining it, I don't know. Um, but there's always a point of view. And I've always, so I've always got this frustrated sense of 
I mean, engaging in the actual political argument is important, and it's a, that's what I do. I mean, that's part an important part, part and part of what I do. I'm happy to argue with anybody. You know, I'm particularly happy to argue in, in picture form. Um, Um, what about what about you, Brian? I mean, one of the questions that you know that popped into uh, my mind when I was thinking about this talk earlier on was, I wonder if they're angrier at um, at the uh, the political situation uh, now. I mean, you're on you're on record, Steve, saying you know I wish Thatcher were dead. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, so I'm kind of <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, but you know, I'm sort of I'm thinking, you know, okay, well, how do you how do you both feel about um, you know current politics? Um, I'm not asking you to go on record with any death threats here at, uh, at LSE. I'd like to to be quite clear about that. Um, but you know, is there a sense in which you feel your responsibility is even greater now because actually, you know, you feel as though the political context, both you know, perhaps internationally or, or nationally, you know, is is pushing you to be to 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 speak up more. You were saying earlier on that in your next book, people will be marching for equal rights. So is that an indication of getting angrier? It's not that immediate, I don't think. But yeah, I am angry at this current government because it, nobody voted them in and they're doing mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff that they didn't, you know, they, mm -hmm. it wasn't proposed in the, um, you know, when, when they were running for office. Yeah. They're just allowing this coalition to let them do anything they want. And it basically, it's completely dominated by the, the Tories. I, mean, mm -hmm. I don't think it probably feeds directly into, uh, into my stories. Well, it does feed directly, directly into yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is motivated by a kind of, um, well, you can't sustain rage all the time because it drives out potty, but it is, a, it is a prime mover of what I do. And, yes, Brian said the coalition's a good case in point. And suddenly I've started finding myself hating Liberal Democrats, which is a new feeling because the Liberal Democrats are always sort of um, amusing and sort of, sort of soapy. And not anymore, they're evil. Cameron. <laughs> Cameron must be somebody very hard to caricature. You know, I've heard him described as a buttock with eyes. Yeah, that sums him up quite well. <laughs> well, he, he's good for, I quite like, quite like caricaturing him. He, he's rubbery and round and bulgy eyed, so he's got good features to go with. He's also very smooth, he's got an uncanny, sleek skin. You look at his skin, you, I've, I've looked at him close up almost yeah. with a magnifying glass. <laughs> there's, no, there's no hair follicles there. The man is smooth. He is, and he bends his, his, his head and it, suddenly you get these creases like a balloon, like when you twist a balloon. Um, so <laughs> so that's, 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 that's all the, the condom thing. And this, this, it kept constantly going on about transparency. So, so I depict him as a jellyfish, which is the only um, transparent organism I can think of. But that was a bit complicated, so the condom evolved out of that. So it, it's always fun following them and trying to investigate them, but <laughs> investigate them visually. What about what about in terms of international politics? Um, you know, do you do you do you feel in, in very different ways, obviously, but do you feel that you both uh, do you have a sense in which you know again this the kind of the reach, uh, perhaps unprecedented reach of of, of your work. <coughs> Um, not just because of circulation of books, but obviously online, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Does that create a, a different sense of, of responsibility? You know, do you all of a sudden become global actors, uh, or are or are you in fact really rather impervious to that? So I'll start with you, actually. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've been published in lots of countries over the years, mm. you know, so it's nothing new. Mm. What can be seen in different countries, and now, of course, you get uh, a lot of. Um, 
pirating um, mm. comics, you know, because people just scan them in, put them out there for nothing, and only you're supposed to make a living off of, of, of this by doing that. Uh, you can just download the things uh, off the internet. And one of the reasons, one of the ways I'm trying to combat this is by making the last three books, Alice and the Granville books, I'm trying to combat this by making them nice artifacts mm. themselves, things that are, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to, to hold. You know, you can see it's got an embossed cover, it's got nice steampunk end papers, you know, it's, um, it's like an old fashioned book, which you can't get that experience by downloading it. That's what I'm uh, working on now, is actually written on my life. Um, um, yeah, that's the way I'm com trying to combat uh, internet piracy. Internet piracy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, the international version is interesting because now with the internet, you stuff gets out on the Guardian website, and of course, get comments from everywhere. Um, I'm always amazed that it does get, get responses from all over the place. Um, but I don't, I try not to do, I, if I try and do American politics, I don't understand enough about American politics to be able to do it. Mm. I know Bush from a distance, I know Obama, but I haven't really had much a great deal to say about Obama lately. But again, it's because the offensive, the medium is offensive and necessarily so. And I haven't had that much to sort of lay into him for. I mean, for being a bit vague or academic, well, you know, uh, not much of a satire. <laughs> uh, but with Bush was a, you know, as an enemy, he was you know, eminently kickable. Um, not that it ever had any effect on him, but um, his stuff does get across and does get. I mean, a lot. I'm talking about pirating. I mean, loads of papers across the Arab world were using my stuff. I think yeah. they didn't pay it; they just left, lifted it. I don't know. I don't mind, I'm also quite happy. <laughs> I was delighted that I went to Jordan and there was loads of countries who knew my work. I was astonished. Um, and Egypt as well, this was a few years back. It was actually with the British Council. But, mm -hmm. um, but as I say, I've discovered that cartoon actually very, is very important in the Middle East, despite the repressive regimes and despite of the fact that most of the papers, you know, ministries of information, everything's controlled. But the cartoons do have a, are a chink for right to get through. Before, before I, I uh, start asking you specifically about um, about the drawing, about you know, the, the, the graphic novels and comic strips and stuff, I wanted to ask a, a question about, um, particularly to, to you, Brian, the, the connection to between uh, the, the, the fantasy and the violence in your um, you know in your work, and, and, and it's uh, it's particularly striking in the in the Granville uh, in the Granville books. Um, it strikes me that you know people have picked up, and you've almost directly referred to in some of your drawings to a kind of Tarantino-like uh, quality uh, of, uh, of your work. What, so, what ex you know, what is the relationship between your drawing and, and, and violence? And well, I mean, with the Granville books, especially, I'm, I'm basically I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, make real page turners, you know, real exciting little detective turners, steampunk detective turners, pure and simple. And um, so, I mean, I'm trying to make them exciting and, and a bit hard-edged because mm -hmm. of foreign adult consumption, adult mm -hmm. readership. Um, and actually, I said the first book is more Tarantino-ish. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say the second one, the new one, more, refers more to Hitchcock, yeah. actually. Um, and the next one, it's called Granville Bet Noir, is, uh, <laughs> is, is a bit it's like steampunk James Bond story, basically. Um, so I'm just I'm trying to do the page turns, right. and it is, you know, as they say, cartoon violence to some extent. Mm -hmm. But you know, in, in order to be exciting, you know, really, you need you need a bit of 
I think with um, you know, with you anyway, with Brian and I, we're concentrating on what we're doing, which is in your case a longer narrative. In my case, it's a full frame. Mm. But you, the concentrate is the concentration is absolute. And it has to be, mm. yeah. um, and that's that's the sort of <coughs> essence of what we do. I suppose we can sort of go on to how exactly we do it. Um, and it is like nothing else. It's not like um, written journalists. Well, it means we both effectively spend far more time at a desk, so we're chained to a desk, because physically to draw a comic takes a long time. You've got, to, you've got to write the thing, you've got to sketch it out, then you've got to ink it through, then you've got to um, put the blacks in, then you've got to colour it in, do the lettering, make everything bold, which, as you say, it's the cottage industry itself doing yeah, this yeah. Um It's great fun, and obviously we both enjoy it in, enormously. You get great satisfaction from it. When you've got it, you've got something in your hand which is unique and you've made yourself um, but it's it's just that that focus that focus on the on the peculiar mechanics of like one two three four panels it's fascinating it's an endless well I, I remember you saying once that uh, you know a comic artist needs to an artist needs to live in a, a world of their own <laughs> you know <laughs> you don't remember that <laughs> I don't remember that uh, well, I was in no, it's true I mean you have to to do these things you have to be totally absorbed with them you have to take up practically every second of your mm. almost a, 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 of your waking day and I just can't help myself I, I'm constantly I walk down the street I'm thinking in panels and I'm looking at a window <laughs> going oh yeah I can't that down. I see somebody walking along and I'm going but I'm also referring to, to the books I've got I'm working on I'm, I'm, I'm creating it at the time I'm thinking because can I use that in a comic well, look at the way that cloth's folded. I can use that from this, you know, this uh, illustration. I'm watching a film, I'm looking at the lighting. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the staging, at the composition of the shots. Uh, I'm constantly. You have to do. You have to be totally. Uh, what's, what's the term? Obsessed, I think, mm -hmm. to produce something that, 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 that's good. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that one of the things that. Um, you know, we've segued quite quite well into this. Um, is that most of us who who don't do this uh, for a living really are quite interested in knowing how it is uh, how it is that you work. You know what you know. You see panels walking down the street, but then then what happens? How do you build up these beautifully intricate uh, images, these incredibly direct and and powerful frames? Um, so what we've uh, thought. I mean, I'll. I'll uh, hand over to you, to you first, Brian. Um, if you could, I know you have a presentation to talk us through some of the work. Yeah, uh, so you got to do that now. Yes, it's only a short, um, short thing, is it? So yes. It's a setup.
encapsulate the whole atmosphere between two pages and then turn over and mm. the atmosphere is different mm. and it's just a device so I mean it's not always possible for space constraints I mean very often um, I, won't, I, I always try and keep a scene ending on that on that page on the, on the right hand page um, but it's not always possible um, but even though I, I'll end the scene at the bottom yeah, you can encapsulate the whole atmosphere in, um, in two pages. This is a, a scene in the Folie Berger. I don't know if you recognise the pastiche of the Edward Manet picture uh, <laughs> here. Uh, the broadcaster of a bottle of bass. And they did actually sell bass at the Folie Berger. If you look at Manet paintings, you see a bottle of bass on the counter. But all the colours in this spread are all samples from the Manet painting to give it the same sort of uh, atmosphere. Another example of photograph. It's in steam room, and you can see it's got its own atmosphere between these two pages. And it's also very important, Orange Page Basic because you want to keep the surprises, the things you don't want the reader to see immediately behind the page. They have to turn the page to see the surprise. Mm. Or oh, whatever. Because when you read a comic, you read the text in a linear manner, but you actually you can't help it. You read the pictures all at once, your eyes splitting about. Yeah. It's what's called panoptic reading. Mm. Um, you can't help it. So if you have somebody here, I mean, uh, this happens in a lot of bad comments, you'll have somebody here saying, I wonder who Professor X is, how can we find if you can see it now? <laughs> 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 um, that's that's bad story time. You know, so you need to be able to uh, turn over. And I mentioned about making things harmonious on the eye. And one of, one of the ways I do this is every time I'm planning one of the double page spreads, I always make sure the proportions and the dimensions match the panels. <coughs> Sometimes they mirror each other, but e even if not, you know, the, the, the things are the same. Uh, one thing I do after I've worked out in my mind what's going to be in each panel and how the flow is going to be through the panels, I then I draw the panels out and rule the panel boards in ink, which you've got this is. And this is one of the two double page spreads. It's two different sheets of paper, but I've scanned them in and put them together. And on the computer, I've just put these little arrows in. These two indicate each arrow, uh, different coloured arrow, is the same, exact the same size. So you can see that's the same size as that, that's the same dimension. And sometimes, if they're not exactly the same size, they're in proportion. So the, the, the proportions of the panel are larger. And this is what that page looked like in Granville when it's finished. You won't see this uh, in the finished picture, but. You see, but they, are, they, they work in harmony with each other. And this is an example of actually finishing a scene on this page. I had to finish it on this page. So I do all this scene with the black background, so it makes it ultimate black background that makes it different. Uh, this is a, a Sarah Blurro, uh, Blurro's French for that uh, <laughs> uh, She's actually based on Sarah Bernhardt, and this is actually, uh, her room is actually based on a photograph of Sarah Bernhardt's uh, boudoir. Uh, <laughs> And oh yeah, I, I've got when I'm designing individual pages, you have to lead the eye from one point to the next. You have, it has to flow. It has, it has to easily um, go in the flow. I wonder if there's things working. So this, uh, this point around and standing in front of the screen. And I was trying to have a compositional line that goes to the focal points in the picture. Can you see that? I think that when you do that, see this is a very simple straight line leads the eye up. So these compositional lines, it's the first thing I'll do. I'll, I'll draw a line and I'll try and, I'll try and follow that. 
this is a very different one. You can see here it's total points on the uh, new. That's probably not working, but <laughs> you see, you go like that, and there's this things yeah. like yeah. for these bits. Yeah. That's the basis for that one. Here's a straight line, uh, and here it's a straight line. It's almost as if the compositional line is pushing mm. this guy through the door. Mm. And I'm just going to bit to you, I thought you might be interested in the different stages that Grandel Page goes through. Um, Although I do quite a bit of it on the computer, I still like just drawing it on a drawing board. So I, this, this, is a, this is a photograph, this is a scanner that the pencils over the whole page. You see, is this just the, the visuals penciled in? And, then I, and what I usually do is I, I, I pencil the whole book, and then I go and start at the beginning again, and then ink the whole book, and then type and colour the whole book. And this is because I find that after you know, spend a year penciling it or something, when you go back to ink it, you go, that hand's wrong. You know, the eye's too low. Do you ink over your penciling? Or do yeah. You, so you, the penciling is lost, so it's lost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it's rubbed out after. Great shame, it's still really nice. Um, yeah, so it's then inked over next. This is a page that's after the inking. And this is the point I scan it in uh, <coughs> the computer. And then this is the only stage I don't do, actually, because it's so time consuming doing one of these books, it took a year and a quarter. Uh, I actually employ a friend of mine to do the flat colours, it's called colour flats. So what he's done, he goes through every page and he picks each different bit of the picture and he colours it a flat colour. It's, it's called colour flats. And this means it just, it means it's a bit faster for me to colour it. It still takes me about a day you know, or over a day sometimes, on average, to colour the whole page. Because it's like being fully painted out, almost. You know, like using a brush on a, on a, um, a tablet, you know, Wacom tablet. Um, but it enables me, with a little click, I can click on that, and suddenly it's, it's just chosen all of that colour, all of that coat, which means I can render over it without, you know, painting the other things. But I can click on that, on this colour, and change it to another one, which I didn't do. This is the, the finished colours. You see it's quite different, but um, it, mean, it just speed, uh, speeds up the process uh, a little bit. Uh, I've also here, I think, yeah, I've dropped, in Photoshop I've put on a stronger panel border, I've done the lettering, I've done the, the lettering on a separate layer. And um, then it has, what's that? You see, I, then put, I tend to put a colour tint, a very slight colour tint over different scenes to give them a slightly their own atmosphere. And then I think it's finally cropped for the... You do what's called bleed off, you do the edge so that if the printer prints it slightly to one side, there's a little white strip going on the other page. And finally, I do work on computer quite a lot. Um, and this is a page from Alice in Sunderland which I did have a lot on computer. I, I composed it all on computer. I did the drawings, like this one, separately, but then put it in, collaged it with photographs and found material. And uh, some of the layers on this, I mean, this scene of the auction of Alice in some of this, here yeah, had something like, I, I think it was about 80 different layers. All of these samples, different photographs, and arranged. This is actually the, the, the podium from sort of it. Paintings are from somewhere else, you know, it's all composed on computer. But I wanted to show you how to put together this panel at the bottom. 
This is the actual ship that uh, Alice Little sailed to America on in 1936 when she, um, uh, when she was awarded only a doctorate at Columbia University. It's the Beringer, the HMS Beringer, and I actually managed to find one picture of the actual ship, and, and there it is. And I then dropped in some clothes I've taken outside the window, which photographs of clothes, put it in as a background. Uh, I did some sea <laughs> here, uh, and then some smoke. And this is actually smoke from a, a, a steam train. <laughs> so, and I blended it in, as you can see, and I think fine with the. Well, and seagulls. <laughs> and each one of these seagulls was on a different layer. And then it's flattened, I think, finally. Uh, I've tinted it blue, and I've run it through this uh, <coughs> watercolour filter on the computer to make it look like it's, it's got a painted texture. You can see the difference if I go back and then. Yeah. It's more painted. And this one looks like again on the, on, on the finished page. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Before, um, just before I hand it to you, uh, Steve, I just wondered whether you could, uh, you could just, you've referred to it throughout um, uh, bits of uh, of our conversation today. But I wonder whether you could say a little bit more about your use of animals because it is so particularly <laughs> striking in these um, the books. in the Granville books. I mean, for those of you who haven't um, uh, had the pleasure of uh, of reading the latest Granville book, there is an amazing. Uh, hippopotamus bordello keeper, uh, which is uh, you know, which is, which is absolutely sort of allegorical and phantasmagorical, and you know, the, the best that you can do, uh, I think, in sort of anthropomorphic drawing. I wonder if you could just say a little bit of more about your use of animals. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the whole the books were inspired by. I mean, the starting points was inspired by the work of Jean Ignace's Adore Girard who was an uh, early 19th century French illustrator. And he did a lot of these anthropomorphic pictures at the time. And very I mean, I used to spend years thinking about a graphic novel before I started. In the back of my head, I've got folders of graphic novel ideas, you know, I, I think about. Um, but Grandel, the first one, it just came in a flash like that. It almost came fully formed. And I was looking at the book, uh, Girard, Girard, and he used to sign himself J.J. Grandel. And I suddenly thought, Granville, that could be the name of Paris, an alternative universe that's uh, it's populated by animals. And where French, uh, the French Empire, you know, French won at Waterloo, you know, they, they won the Napoleonic Wars, and France dominates the world, and Paris is the biggest city in the world, its nickname is Granville, so it's big, the big, <laughs> biggest city in the world. And I wanted to do a detective story for a while, so that, that's all the ingredients, and I sat there, it practically wrote itself, it was amazing. Um, but yeah, I use it. I'd never done anthropomorphic books as well before, so I thought, yeah, I like to do something different. I don't know if you noticed when my slides have been on change, you see the styles change and everything. So I'm really into one of my biggest influences, I think, is David Bowie. You know, the way he used to reinvent himself with each album, the Beatles to some extent as well. Um, and that's what I try to do, because I get bored doing the same thing uh, a lot. I want to do different sorts of things. So I'd never done anthropomorphic book. Um, so I started looking into that, and I, I, there's a lot of anthropomorphic comics, but these sort of stories, they've been around since the dawn of time. Anthropomorphic stories, the big characters, have been around as long as people have told stories. Mm. There's, a, there's a cave painting in uh, the Trois-Freux Cave on, in, on, on the south coast of France, and it's, it's an anthropomorphic character. It's a man, he's got antlers, he's got a tail, 
said to be a shaman, but you know, who knows, it's an anthropomorphic character. And of course, all the world's religions and mythologies have anthropomorphic characters in them. Uh, you know, the Hindu ones of Ganesh and uh, Hanuman, the monkey god, who's closely related to Sun Wukong, the uh, Chinese um, uh, monkey king, who you probably might know from the Japanese serial, The Monkey, that was yeah. on quite a, a while ago. Um, uh, they're in all sort of culture, like the Egyptian gods, you know, uh, Horus and Ibis and uh, <coughs> Thoth, Anubis. Who am I thinking of? One, the Ibis head. That's Thoth, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're anthropomorphic characters. And even in the Greek and Roman myths and Scandinavian myths, I mean, lots of the gods, um, personifications of something, you know, the, the, the god of war or the god of love or the goddess of love or the, the god of thunder or whatever. But there's all these stories about Zeus turning into different animals in order to get laid. I mean, it's got to, uh, you know, not look very good in real life. He's always turned into something else to have sex with women. You know, he's a swan or uh, a bull in one, uh, in one occasion. He turns into a shower of gold, a golden shower, which I won't go into. But, um, it, it's the, and it's continued. You know, I mean, even in, 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 in the Bible, the first chapter, you know, we, we have an anthropomorphic snake. Um, but it's continued in folklore and fairy tales, you know, with like the Red Riding Hood. And I mean, in Africa, they have lots of stories about Anansi, Central Africa, the, the, the trickster god who's a spider. And these, of course, went to America when all the slaves, millions of slaves were taken there. And they blended with the Cherokee myths of the trickster rabbit. And they became the Burr Rabbit stories. And these weren't, it was Joel Chandler Harris that documented these. I mean, he just didn't do it. Lots, lots of people did because they were around. Everybody, they, you know, um, ethnic people were telling these stories, and he documented them. I think Theodore Roosevelt's uncle documented them as well. But he's the most well known because he invented this character called Uncle Remus as a framework to tell these stories. And he did seven, I think, seven Uncle Remus books. So they've continued these. They've been around as long as uh, as they've been stories. So it's nice to do continue the tradition. What's interesting is that often the um, the anthropomorphic quality, the part, part human, part animal, um, confers uh, special powers or special wisdom. Uh, whether it's in you know in in, in the various um, uh, in Aesop's fables or in in, in various other uh, other forms. In in your work, generally, animals don't have uh, special wisdom. It's actually it's a it's a different way of caricaturing a human trait rather than any sort of added, uh, added yeah, well, in some know, ways positive it's powers. <laughs> in some ways it's nothing to do with the animal. I'm, I'm sort of, not entirely cynical, but I'm using animals uh, mm -hmm. deliberately as a kind of um, as a kind of cipher. In some cases from my own views, I have small anarchic penguins who are expressing my own <laughs> sort of anger and rage. Um, but the, the, the important thing about animals, using animals in it, comic strip. Firstly, animals are incredibly well suited to a comic strip because um, they're striking looking, you can get them to a, um, they, you can condense them down to a kind of neat graphic, um, if you like, as a recipe for, if you're drawing a sort of human face, um, expressing psychological, psych <laughs> with, with all that kind of psychological depth, it, it does rather leave you with problems because if you're trying to characterise something or get get a point across, then you get a whole raft of. If you introduce a human face into it, unless it's a face of a real person, like a politician, 
then you're, you're, you're landed with all kinds of problems about well, what's, who is this person, what, is, what does it mean, what do they really think, and I, I, I sort of, you have to learn your own limitations, and I learned my own limitations quite early, I'm not very good at doing human characters, uh, I can do politicians, no problem, because they're there ready-made <laughs> for me to exploit, but I, for instance, I'm always in awe of something like Posey Simmons, who can create utterly believable characters on the page that are fully rounded, and she can sum up a face and expression with just a few flicks of the pen. Now, I, I'm in awe of that. There are other cartoonists who do it as well. Uh, I, I always like uh, Alex in the, uh, no, the Telegraph, he used to be in the Indie, but very, I can believe those characters. When I try and do, when I start doing characters, I can never entirely believe them. I'm very conscious they are ciphers who are expressing my uh, <laughs> uh, deranged or whatever you like to say views. Um, so it's a way of distancing. Uh, it, it spares you the problems of um, psychologising and, and the psychological depth in a human being. Yeah, we can also indicate what sort of character the, the person is. You know, the, the, the hippo brothel keeper, the, there's a, an assassin who's an alligator in the first one. You know, you can, by the choice of animal, you know, you can put across a lot of the character without any exposition. I mean, I chose a badger for the brock because badgers are quite ferocious creatures and quite tenacious, and that's his character. I mean, he's got the deductive ability to Sherlock Holmes, but being a badger, he's quite happy to beat the crap out of a suspect to get <laughs> information. <laughs> um, and it's just the choice of character. And uh, I think it's like the, um, you know, the Commedia dell'arte, uh, Italian theatre uh, productions, where they wear masks, and the mask immediately denotes the character. You know, the punch another whatever. Um, so it, it works on those levels. Thank you. Um, Steve, I think you've got a presentation called Sketches as well. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I can just zip through it. And then we'll, we'll go yeah. to... My, my method of working is much... <laughs> it's so in some ways much less meticulous than Brian's, um, but in other ways it's sort of... It's just utterly different. Mine's... Uh, no, it's, and if I want to just... What do I tap just to go through? Do I just, just that up? Um, back to this Blair sketch. Um, sketching is important to me. Um, this is actually rather big. I usually use a smaller sketchbook because I'm very discreet. And I, hold a, I hold a pen in a sort of rather weird way. I'm left-handed and I hold my pen like that, which is sort of double, which means I work very small. So I tend to be sort of cramped and a little like that. Um, yeah, I'm a large individual, but I am very small in my work. Um, I use, to do all my finished stuff, it's usually, this is smaller than what I usually, but this is this, watercolour paper which is beautifully smooth, it's hot pressed, lovely and thick and you can, and I particularly love these, everything's in colour so I love watercolour um, and I just love the way it blurs and blends across the page and I'm, I'm in love with watercolour I'm lo looking forward to seeing the exhibition at the Tate. Anyway, so it's just, the pro it's just the physical process, I get a delight, I get a delight of scratching the pen, you know, there's that physical, so I couldn't, like Brian, work on Photoshop, I, that, it all dies for me, when I get to a whack on tablet, and I hold the thing like this, and I'm completely buggered, because it starts going, <laughs> so actually, if I'm drawing on the screen, I can do better with my right hand, with a mouse, just like that. Just well, like I said, I me as well. I I do the original drawings on paper. So, you know, so what drawing? What fascinates me about drawing is that's a finished one. Cartoons obviously finished very controlled, but they come out of quick thought. It's always about speed. It's always about expressive, being expressive. So I do loads of these. Um, let's, let's go back the room again. That's him looking preachy. <laughs> I was searching for the mad eye one, but it didn't come up with it. Um, 
Where is it? Here we are. These are just sketches I do at public conferences. There's hundreds of them. I just flick through. That's Portillo. There's a joy in doing it. I do them, I do them. I sort of force myself to do it. The thing about drawing is it's actually hard work. It's not, when you get a sketchbook out, it changes the dynamic of a room. What are you doing? What's that? Ooh, that doesn't look like <laughs> So I'm very discreet and I tuck myself away. And the great thing in public conferences is I can sit in the dark and nobody bothers me. I'm sitting behind the photographer. I'm just sitting in front of a lot of tourists and then I'm going to say, you know, what the hell? This is a Chucky Bum, Lib Dem. That's Lord Strathclyde, he's been in the news a lot, he's a fat bloke. That's uh, Portillo again, that's Angus Moore, he's been around a lot lately, he's come back again. This is from years ago, this is from 10 years ago. But it's, it's great, you could, I can build up this sort of back knowledge about what the buggers actually look like. Uh, in 2001, Tony Blair had green hair. Don't know, don't ask me why. It's because for, he started being photographed in front of purple background and lit in a certain way. I think he sprang something his hair, made his hair go green. There's him with his... <laughs> oh, that's him in there. Look, that's... Yeah, I took that picture myself. <laughs> I was that close to him, I could have hit him with my camera. <laughs> there he is. But it, I'm not trying to do the caricature, I'm trying to see what's in front of me, so I'm sort of... They're just sketches, they're just drawing, I'm just taking this, that's the character was interviewing, I can't remember his name. Oh, hey, it's a joy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love it. I just love looking at them. I, I just get a, that's the Lord Ancrum, as it was. That's Gordon Brown. There's hundreds of these. Sk uh, just Tony Blair with his green hair. An <laughs> 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 old Baldy. There he is. Oh, I love Hay. Oh, this is um, God, that's a Chucky Bum. Uh, so my working methods are much more sort of scattered. I, sort of, I'm screw I have a sort of just a piece of paper basically, but it's actually, I keep it all in a book because I like to keep track of where I am. So in a sort of A4 sketchbook, I'll write the date and I'll write the number of the cartoon just to keep track. And then I'll do a load of scribbles, which I can only explain to myself. I show them to you, they're absolutely meaningless. They're not finished drawings at all. These are just drawings done from life. I don't always get the opportunity to do this, I just like doing it. So it's drawing is a kind of ongoing process that you develop. That's David Laws, again, he's uncannily like Thatcher. <laughs> that was from about 10 years ago. Shirley Pearl, that's uh, Shirley William. Shucky again. Eyes like piss holes in the smell. Um, oh <laughs> John Prescott, he actually does look like big sad eyes. Um, there's the, I'd rather exaggerate that, but they are gleaming through. You know. <laughs> Cherie looking worshipful in the background. Tony looking demonic. But it, it's, <coughs> I don't know, I just, I just enjoy looking at them. And the, because my, I have eight deadlines a week, it used to be nine, before that was ten, most, but they're all in colour, which increases the amount of time you spend doing it. Colour just takes that. And Brian, I, think, it's I do all the colouring myself, I couldn't do it. Photoshop, I couldn't, I couldn't sort of, I don't know, I, I feel terrible about sort of letting somebody else do it, I'm too close, you know, <laughs> but because my constraints are so tight anyway, I wouldn't have the time to give it to somebody else to do it, they'd have it back. Yeah, I need I'm it. actually doing a new book in Wildcolour. Yeah, Peter Wall, I do it by hand, it's much better. <laughs> but there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a definite physical joy to these crayons, whatever, these are typical Tories. <laughs> <laughs> Generic. This is um, Ian Duncan Smith. Um, that's uh, Davis, David Davis, David uh, Trimble. Uh, and when you
you get onto the sort of um, finished one, always it's constrained by the frame. I've realised now I have to put the frame. The framing is an important part. It's always a thing. It can be blobby. It can. There's always a, that side. There's that. Um, the lettering can vary. It's always physically. It's always slightly smudged because that's the problem with watercolour. You, you, know, you do it over the top of that. I, I like that. It's, it's part of the enjoyment of watercolour. You tend to sort of use that to sort of work with it. That's why it's quite fascinating. That's a typical, well, it's not typical, it's a Liberal Democrat uh, conference immediately after 9 11. Here we have Liberal Democrat focus, world ends tomorrow. Lib Dems poised to take Norwich! <laughs> <laughs> That's Lord Renard, the famous uh, Charlie again. Uh, well, these are typical Liberal Democrats, they're Liberal Democrats. Delegate. They have a kind of collective soul of that. So the Tories are more angry or more sick. <laughs> that's what it's like, it actually is. <laughs> oh, that's an early Clegg, early days Clegg. That's before Clegg was done. Um, so I'm just trying to. Here's this young, young Lowell, oh, he'll, he'll go far. Who's that? Oh, yeah. Strange sort of shape to him. Sort of. Still grappling with Clegg, because I think Clegg's grappling with Clegg. Clegg doesn't. Really <laughs> and it is a real problem with developing a caricature when the when the character themselves is is, Ill, is not formed. And he's basically a pale echo of Cameron. He's got oh, many of the same features. He's got slightly more sunken eyes, slightly sort of sad looking eyes. Um, got a bigger chin. He's not quite as rubbery as Dave, but he's got a funny sort of quiff at the front. But not really a character. I can't remember his name. But he's a magnificent little Democrat character. Another one. Lord Delacchia. Oh, it's like piss holes in the snow again. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one from the line. The Hollandian constituencies are prepared for bedding. A couple of years later, there was another one which said, it was uh, Ming doing the same thing, but the Hollandian constituencies are prepared for death. <laughs> Jack Straw. <laughs> John Prescott. I, I had a theory that John Prescott's hair was false. I don't know if it's and not only the language, there is. Podium language is all important to the politician. So and that's just one of Tony Blair's favourite hand signs. It's the international sign of fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So, it, 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 so all the time, just quick, 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 trying to grab what's in front of me. It's quite uncomfortable, Joy. It's not easy. It's not, so I've got to, to force myself to do it. I'm always glad that I've done it because I've got this stuff I can refer back to. As Bill Clinton made a rare appearance at a Labour conference, he has his glowing red nose. <laughs> Amazing sense of presence that a guy is. He's going to mumble and people lean towards him to hear what he's saying. He has such kind of raw charismatic power. Where somebody's like uh, Ian Duncan Smith has no charismatic power at all. <laughs> you can feel your own charisma being sucked away. <laughs> <laughs> So that's really, that's it. Yeah. Um, so that's my constraints are, in a sense, I've got to do it all in four hours, essentially, because I'm going to take two deadlines, morning and evening. Makes, makes the week very regular. Friday's my only loose day with no deadlines. And um, oh, this, is, <laughs> this is a sun photographer wandering around. With his fucking huge lens. And then he actually did this. <laughs> so you see this stuff, so it's great, you can just note it down and make it. This is IDS, the man with no nil. You stand close to him, you can 
you can feel your own charisma being sucked away. <laughs> <laughs> it comes into the into the into the spotlight and disappears. Yeah, uncanny. There he is, hapless looking character, a collapsed look. Eager to there he is. We work out. And strange sort of as you see, we've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Oh, here's a Gordon Brown one. This is a it's Gordon Brown podium language. He's got a very big body, very short arms. So he, he grasps. <laughs> <laughs> this is this 2003, I think it was. He was the most animated I've ever seen. He was positively demented. I'm sorry. And I think <laughs> at that point he thought he was about to become Labour leader, and then he had it snatched away. And at the same conference, I think Tony Blair actually moved himself to tears on a flood of his own rhetoric, which I've never seen anybody do that. Here it is. That's the tear. I drew it. I've never, ever, before or since, seen anybody move themselves to tears. And he, the same conference as Gordon, was so full of himself. Tony was looking and he said, I'm going I'm to I'm lose this. And that's when he decided, I think, that he wasn't going to do it. That's, that's my theory, anyway. So that, that's what I've finished it at. Great. Anyway, so thank you. Thank you very, very much. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Well, we have about 15 minutes left. And um, I'm sure that uh, after both of these exposés, you you might have some questions of your own. So uh, please feel free. Do we have mics? or We do have mics. We have one mic. Thank you. So um, before, we, uh, before we call it a day, anybody questions for, for either of them or for both of them, in fact? Yes. There has to be an element of anger in it, but you can't fake it. There's no point trying to simulate it. And sometimes you can be too angry, and it sort of, you know, it, it sort of short circuits you. You can't. It's you feel so cross about it, you just can't get it out. You have to, you know, let it digest for a day or two. Um, I'm sort of. It's strange having to do something every day. You expect it to be absolutely topical. Actually, strangely enough, it's politics by and large goes on and on. It's the same bloody stories year in, year out. I've been doing the same thing about Tory cuts since the beginning of time, it feels like. These, these, this same topic, the same themes, the same uh, essential message, the same peop stupid people doing the same stupid things. So, yeah, I've had a long time to be reflective about that. Um, I think it has to be there, but you've got to be a bit careful because if, if, you, if you just rant, you know, he sort of lose, you know, loses, loses focus. If you like, it just sort of, um, I don't know, just, just kind of. And the worst thing of all is simulated anger or simulated rage, and that's the thing to be avoided at all. Did you want to rejoin? I don't really work angry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's something hard to maintain, isn't it? Over, I mean, these thing about these the graphic novels is they're so time-consuming. We had a berries here in Britain Brew like this. You <laughs> vouch for this. They're so time-consuming doing it. I mean, it takes about three days to do a page, and this is about 100 pages in the book. Uh, so I tend to work seven days a week, ten hours a day, which I don't mind. I enjoy doing it. If I'm home, I, I'm working. Uh, 
Um, so if I'm angry about something, you can't maintain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, over it would be very bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, any anyone else in the the audience? Any other questions? Yes. Reflect on what? Well, yeah, it reflects on certainly on um, um, whether it impacts on. I can't say. And only in the sense that um, any form of commentary. You know, I've got I've got a big slot in a daily paper. Well, one big slot, one small slot, every four days a week. So, I, you know, I've got that outlet, and I can I can express my um, my my sort of wildest ravings. Um, I, I think. Any form of commentary influences debate. I wouldn't. It's foolish to say you have no, you know, to to, to be to sort of um, play false modesty. No, it has no effect. I think you know, you know, you contribute to a climate of um, the way people are perceived, and you have, you know, as a doing visual things, you have a very distinctive way of doing it, which you can get to people. I think, although though, though I don't think people the scales fall. I see a cartoon, <laughs> the scales are falling from my eyes. <laughs> Somebody's actually appreciated. I, I always start from the base position that I'm astounded that anybody finds it either interesting or funny, and so I'm delighted. That, you know, this sounds like false modesty, I think probably, but that's the way I, I look at it. I don't. I, it is. It is very quick. It's very disposable. It can go horribly wrong sometimes. I don't like to dwell on mistakes, but uh, <laughs> you try to. What the whole point is, you're doing it so regularly. You're trying to keep your standards up. You're trying to keep your quality up, and you do have to, you know, apply yourself. 
critically to what you do. So it's it's delight. It's great when somebody really is obviously appreciated, and there's somebody specifically somebody new, you know, the subject you've done something. In Brian's case, one bad rat, which is a fabulous piece of work, and somebody who'd been through it actually appreciate that must be a great. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a I've had all sorts of stories. I mean, it's basically about a girl who has an affinity with Beatrix Potter, who's homeless, and her only companion is this pet rat that she liberated from the school dissection room. And uh, she's on the streets along with this rat. And I've been told twice, two different occasions, uh, by um, comic retailers, you say one of the people who, who bought the book and had a copy of the book is actually a homeless girl who's been abused, who since I've read the book, she walked around with a pet rat. Um, <laughs> they carry a pet mm. rat about through them. Which is incredible. <coughs> <laughs> well, yes, all, but oddly enough, probably by default, yes. I mean, it's rare, but because, you, because I said it's an offensive medium, so the idea of sort of positive cartoon makes me feel slightly nauseous. Um, but there are cartoons where it's probably quite rare for tourists. I remember one, I did one about, do you remember Peter Brook, who was the Northern Ireland secretary? Um, and this was way back in the, eight, in the late 80s. And he made a speech which sort of got through and sort of, because he, he was, you know, but it was hellish, and it was, the troubles were at their very worst. The Tories had been, you know, the Tory position on the island had been awful. It, 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 just, the war had got worse and worse and worse. But then he made this speech where he said, where he opened up the, he suggested there might be a distant possibility of a political settlement in Northern Ireland, which from somebody from the right wing was actually quite remarkable. And it was, at, of course, as soon as the unionists, the unionists were, never, we'll never sit down with those people who sit down, with people who sit down, and so on and so on. Uh, but I did a cartoon which was like, um, based on an old Bateman cartoon of the man who, the man who suggested, so it was the man who suggested the distant hypothetical possibility of a settlement in Northern Ireland. So it was, it was Peter Brook in the middle, just looking sort of this quite happiest looking chap. Um, and, uh, Every, all around him, surrounded by unionists, heads blowing up, going <laughs> exploding in rage in the way that Bateman cartoons work. So that could be construed as being sympathetic. <laughs> it's a rare example of a sympathetic. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it is his mainly offensive. That's true. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, if there's anyone in the current crop Well, it's by it. default, it's the ones I don't do. <laughs> 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 Respect your science. Yeah, well, you can't be sure of that. Because not, not, every, not, not every subject lends itself to doing cartoon, that's the trouble. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's been the question in the front here is both. Um, my kids love cartoons and love graphic novels, but they don't read much. They get them on their apps, they get them on the internet. And Meaning cyberspace. Yes, oh, okay. and in, in all its various forms and apps, 
you know, that's where the cartoons they're looking at now, a lot of the graphic stuff is now done on apps, on, yeah. on uh, all different kind of electronic media, and I'm just interested, these are my kids, and they look, if I show them one of your cartoons, they think they're great, but they, would, they never read newspaper, mm -hmm. so I'm wondering about how it gets carried over, that kind of uh, critical, countercultural thing. I think the, the Dark Horse, uh, the, the American publisher, Graham Valde, um, have, I don't, I've never used them, but they, they do our iPad versions and uh, apps. And, uh, and it's on DVD book. as well, isn't it? Some of your works available on DVD. Uh, yeah, well, the Heart of Empire, we did, um, with my chap, the chap who does my website. That's right. Um, I, he suggested it. Uh, I mean, one thing, very often you get asked at these uh, at comic panels, comic festivals, or whatever it is. Some people always say, where do you get your ideas from? You know? And I thought, I'll do, they'll do this CD-ROM of the Empire that answers all these questions. And a bit like a director's commentary mm. on, on the whole book. Um, so that this CD-ROM, it's got the entire, it's got all the 300 odd page story in there, in colour. But you can also look at it in high res colour and go in detail. But you can also click, it's very easy, in the way he set up the navigation system is very uh, intuitive, very straightforward. You can go from the colour page to see the inks for that page or the pencils for that page, uh, because I photocopied all the pencils that I went on. Um, or you can click on that page and see all the annotations for that page. And then the annotations, I'll be referring to something I might refer to Hogarth's um, scene in Bedlam in, in Plate Rake Progress. And it, you can see that on the screen. So it's very sort of, you know, you go all over it. But yeah. well, what about you, Steve? Because, of, you know, your, your, your work is tied to uh, an embattled uh, yeah. space itself in terms of the space of, you know, more traditional newspapers and, and well, journalism. Well, yeah, very, so very, very con yeah, who works at newspapers are very conscious that newspapers are shrinking all the time and, and they're all fighting a almost battle against losing advertising. I mean, they've lost huge amounts of um, just, you know, adverts, job adverts, everything. And this is the lifeblood of newspapers, and they are all in a difficult position. The Guardian, no less than any of the rest of them. Um, and it, you know, the only thing I know, I know my stuff gets pirated and gets pinged out because it's on the internet. Anyway, once it's out on the internet, then it's gone. <laughs> the people will do what they like with it. They'll put it on their blogs. They'll, you know, they probably make T-shirts. I mean, don't tell me about it. You know, I, I, they shouldn't do it. They should demand my approval, and then I take a cut. But um, it, it's it's difficult. It's, it, you, you, you're quite right. It's. I, I, I hope that it, you know, young kids can look at this stuff and, and sort of come to it and think and enjoy it. That's the main thing. Um, whether they'll come and buy it. Well, they don't have to buy the guy. They'll we'll probably just go and look at it. You know, so they'll, that, well, For now. Yeah, pull them in. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you look at the Times, it's appalling, isn't it? Uh, the number of comments on the Times is like. I was looking at Peter Brooks's cartoon. And, 50 comments today. No, it wasn't. It was 50 comments since last <laughs> October. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's a paywall. It, it doesn't. It, you know, it, it keeps people out. So I wonder if that's the same. Or maybe they'll do it on the app on the um, iPad. That might be feasible because it's, it's quite good. It works quite well. And I'm sure they're all. I'm sure the guy is probably working on that even now. And they're all desperate to get income streams from something or other. And, um, it's always a problem, I suppose. As as creators, you've got to be very careful about letting your rights go. You, you accept that, that you know, stuff's got to be out there because otherwise nobody's going to know about it. But on the other hand, 
you don't want it to be exploited by somebody who's then going to rip you off because you want to have some benefit from your own work. It's very difficult. How do cartoonists get paid? How do cartoonists who are working on the web get paid money? Ariana Huffington and her bloody post. You know, it's built on the fact that she doesn't pay anybody anything <laughs> and she's just sold it for X million. Um, well, you sort of say good luck to her, but you know, it's because people want to write for nothing. Um, people do have to be paid. It's important that if you're doing journalism or serious journalism or serious cartooning, you need to eat. You know, you need <laughs> but it's also an alternative voice. That that's also what I was so interested in there because both of you represent an alternative way of looking at things, and that that, it, that is represented too. Yeah. On yeah. We have time for one more question. Okay, I'll take two more questions. 